All right, good morning, everybody. I, uh, so I need to begin with a confession uh, this morning. My confession is that at the risk of being perceived as an oddball up here, at least for those of you who don't know me very well, I have to con- confess this really obscure interest of mine. So ever since I was uh, a sophomore in college uh, and I visited Russia when I was a student, uh, I-, I came back with this really weird Russia bug uh, of interests where I enjoy all kinds of things about the, the history and culture of the Soviet Union. And it's a strange interest, I know, but there's, there's even this, uh, this section on my bookshelf at home uh, where I've dedicated it to Soviet studies and the history and culture of, of Russia at that time. And some of my favorite artifacts from the Soviet Union are those old Soviet propaganda posters. Uh, you all probably know what I'm talking about. Kind of like in the United States during World War II when we had Rosie the Riveter uh, and she was kind of the poster child for the war efforts. Um, well, in, in a similar way, Russia uh, in the Soviet era uh, had these Soviet propaganda posters. And so I love finding old Soviet propaganda posters both online and in print. I love uh, learning how to read them and, and trying to find out what they're trying to promote. And so mostly they're just propaganda, uh, motivational slogans uh, from the government trying to inspire you um, to do something uh, that they wanted you to do as a Soviet. And so here's, let me tell you about a couple of my favorites. Um, I wish I had, had them in print to show you, but you'll have to use your imagination a little bit. So uh, one, one of my favorites is a, is a picture of a woman. She's in her kitchen. She has a, a kind of a bandana on her head, and she's destroying her kitchen. She's throwing everything off the countertops and uh, tossing it around. And the caption at the bottom of that propaganda poster says, Off with kitchen slavery. And so Morgan and I keep that one up in our kitchen, just to remind us. <laughs> And then there's, there's another one. Uh, it's a picture of a tree. And on both sides of the tree, there's two lumberjacks with a really long saw. And it's being cut in half uh, by these two lumberjacks. And the inscription on the tree says, uh, Giving beyond expected to Comrade Stalin. So I guess if you're a tree, you give your all, and that's, that's good in the Soviet world. So, and then another one uh, is a picture of one man, and he's covering another man's mouth, uh, kind of like this. And the caption below that one reads, Talking too much helps the enemy. And so Morgan and I keep that one up in our office just to remind us uh, to stay quiet. So inevitably, uh, with Soviet propaganda, you come across these really regal uh, propaganda posters. And these are the ones that are meant to inspire you to some serious Soviet action. And so eventually they, they start to talk about the glory of being involved in something Soviet. So here's, here's a couple that you should be involved in. Um, the glory of the mighty Air Force. The glory of the Russian cosmonaut. The glory of the soldier. Glory to the worldwide October, or the revolution. Glory of the Red Army, guardians of the Soviet borders. And glory to the motherland. So all of those posters obviously uh, make us well up inside with a lot of Soviet pride, makes us, um, makes us want to join the Soviet Union, right? So probably not. Uh, propaganda posters are a little dated. Uh, they're a little out of vogue right now. And so we tend to think they're a little bit on the creepy side. But if we think about it for a minute, we still use posters just like this. We don't promote much in the way of the glory of the Soviet Union anymore, but we all still tend to make our own version of personal propaganda posters. And we put our posters on the world uh, for the whole, on display for the whole world to see. So for instance, someone who's active, fit, athletic, uh, on their poster might be some accolades about their athletic prowess and, and general abilities. Or someone who's really good at their job 
uh, might carry around a personal glory poster uh, with achievements or position at their work. A college student might carry around a personal glory propaganda poster with GPA or number of friends on Facebook. Moms and dads might be chasing their personal glory uh, propaganda posters around the courtyard after church, trying to get them to behave. Churches and ministries might compare their personal glory posters with attendance numbers on them compared to other churches and ministries in town. Basically, we can find all kinds of things uh, to go on our personal glory propaganda posters. Money, talent, ambition, success, intelligence, relationships, fame. It's all fair game. Basically, we all love to promote our own glory. But that's not the way it was supposed to be, and so it never satisfies us either. And it's not the first time in history that a group of people have tried to seek and promote their own glory either. So if you have your Bible with you, open up to the very first book, Genesis, and flip to chapter 11, and stand with me while we read Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Lord, I pray that you would make your word clear. I pray that you would make me clear. Uh, I pray that we would love your word uh, and be illuminated by it uh, and enjoy you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. All right. So I think it's helpful when looking at this passage uh, to think of it as having two parts or or two different scenes. And there's a tension uh, or a couple of tensions between each of those scenes. So the first scene, the humanity scene, is in verses 1 through 4 of the passage. And the second scene, verses 5 through 9, is the God scene. So let's start first in in verses 1 through 4. Uh, Let's look back through a couple of these verses, uh, see the setting, and then uh, see if we notice any problems. So, one of the first things that we learn in Genesis 11 is that there's this migration going on in verse 2. So, people are traveling from the east, and they're settling in a plain plain called Shinar. So, Shinar, if you can imagine on your Bible map, uh, was this indefinite region around the area of southern Mesopotamia, um, ancient Babylon kind of area, so think modern-day Iraq. And people who were settling there were likely coming out of Armenia, uh, kind of from the northeast. And they're coming down uh, from that region, as they, and as they settle in the plain of Shinar, uh, they start building cities uh, while they're there. So there's nothing inherently wrong uh, with migrating east. I've done it a thousand times. It's really okay. But if you backtrack with me just a few chapters uh, to Genesis chapter 9, let's take a look here at what the tension could be. Genesis chapter 9, Noah and his family have just been spared by God 
as God judged sin in the world and sent the flood. And so Noah and his sons were blessed by God and commanded, in verse 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then they're told to do the exact same thing again in verse 7 of chapter 9. It says, and you, be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. So that's problem or tension number one in our passage. The Lord's plan was to fill the whole earth uh, with his glory, with his divine image, which are people, and to set up his kingdom across the earth as his image bearers, people, expanded and made something of the world, cities and culture and all kinds of other things. So when we read in Genesis 11:2 that the people migrated to Shinar and then they settled there, it shows that the people were operating in complete and direct opposition to God's commands to fill the whole earth. And so God's desire was that the earth would be filled uh, with knowledge of, of him through his image bearers, not that all of humanity was going to be centralized in, in one central location in the plains of Shinar. So that's problem number one in our passage. Let's see if we can look at uh, the passage again and see if we see problem number two. So here in verses 3 through 5, let's see if you can catch the carefully worded glory to the people of Shinar propaganda poster. All right, in verse 3, we find our first clue in the modus operandi of this building project. The story would be completely fine without us knowing what kind of building materials the people of Shinar were using uh, to build the city. They're using brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. But the details preserved for us. So why is that? Well, if you think about it, the first readers of Genesis 11 would have been ancient Israel. And ancient Israel knew a thing or two about building cities when they were enslaved in Egypt. It was an incredibly difficult task. And this task was made even more difficult if you have to use inferior building projects or inferior building materials like brick and bitumen, which is just tar. You only use brick and tar uh, to build your cities when you don't have any stone and mortar available. You have to bake bricks all day long, and you have to melt tar all day long. And so it's hot, dirty, nasty work, like laying asphalt on the street all day long. So when we read uh, that the people of Shinar are wanting to build a city in a tower with its top in the heavens, and that they're going to make the job even more difficult on themselves by using inferior building project materials like bricks and bitumen, we're getting a little bit of a clue as to what's driving them. They're not slaves, not like the ancient Israelites were in Egypt, but they're extremely committed and they're extremely resolved um, to get this building project done. So even if they have to make every brick by hand and melt every ounce of tar uh, in the, the hot sun, so what's their motivation? Look for the propaganda poster with me. Uh, listen again as uh, we read a couple of these verses, and they'll, they'll repeat kind of the same anthem on three different occasions. In verse 3, let us make bricks. In verse 4, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And in, then at the end of verse 4, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So what's their ultimate motivation for this building project? They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted their very own personal glory propaganda poster to stand out so that everybody could see. And the caption beneath their personal glory propaganda poster would probably read something like this. Glory to the incredibly skilled, talented, industrious, intelligent, ambitious, famous, successful, relational, and organized people of Shinar. And they wanted that proud propaganda poster in the form of a very visible city with a tower 
to reach to the heavens so that the whole world could see it and pay attention to it. They'd be safe, they'd be unified, they'd be significant, and they would have name and glory that would last for a very, very long time. Not once is God mentioned or referenced in their plans. So not only were they willfully disobeying God's commands to multiply and fill the earth uh, with his image, they were willfully making a monument and a name and a glory to themselves rather than their creator. So now let's look at verses 5 through 9, uh, the second part of the passage, the second scene. And let's see what happens in this second part of the story when we face off humanity's desire for name and glory with God's desire for name and glory. All right, in verse 9, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. So you're probably picking up on the, the extreme uh, amount of condescension in this, uh, this verse. Uh, first of all, the people of Shinar here are children of man. And their tower, it's not so high after all. God in the heavens actually has to descend from the heavens just to be able to see their little tower. And then in verse 6, we begin to understand uh, what the Lord's concern is here. And his concern is not in the mere construction of a city, but like one commentator put it, God knows the danger of collective disobedience. It's like a magnet for even more disobedience. So some of you probably uh, have thrown parties like these before, but imagine uh, the high school student who, when his parents are away, throws a big house party at his parents' house. And at first he just invites a couple of his friends uh, to partake in the party. And then slowly but surely, the friends invite a few other friends, and the friends of friends invite more friends. And before you know it, his house is full of all kinds of people from high school that he never intended to be there. It was like a magnet for more and more party, magnet for more and more disobedience. And so, in the same way, uh, God is saying that Shinar will be kind of like that high schooler's party. As more and more people are attracted to the city for all the wrong reasons, they'll become capable of more disobedience and more sin against his commands. So then, look at verse 7. In contrast to the people of Shinar's, let us, let's make bricks, let's make a name for ourselves, rallying cries as they build the city, here's the Lord's response in verse 7. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So this is God's let us versus the people of Shinar's let us. And it refers to his divine counsel, or even the Trinity. And in a single word of let us, sovereign power, it usurps all the efforts of humanity. That's the end of the city. It's the end of the tower. That's the end of the building project as the people knew it. Uh, They had a common language. They had common understanding. They had a common way of getting things done and background. And so now, as their language is confused, their entire basis for being able to disobey and build this propaganda poster in the desert is lost with it. So now why exactly, again, did God do that? Was it just to confuse languages, just to make uh, the linguist's uh, job more difficult in the 21st century? Probably not. Because if you look back again uh, to chapter 9, we remember that his desire, his goal, actually from the beginning of Genesis, uh, from the creation of the world, God's desire was for the whole earth to be filled with his glory through his image bearers. And so here it is in verses 8 and 9. Uh, And again, big emphasis in verses 8 and 9. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because the Lord confused their languages of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So the confused people are dispersed. 
God uh, completely reverses uh, the original setting of our passage and his goal of uh, having his image bearers out in the world uh, is accomplished again. So, get to the end of that passage, and we, we would be good to ask ourselves, so what's, what's really the big deal? I mean, why should we really care if the people of Shinar, way back when, wanted to build something that elevated their name uh, and glory in the world? And why should it matter if you and I want to seek just a little bit of our own name and glory in our careers or families or on our campuses? After all, seeking some personal name and personal glory doesn't really hurt anybody, right? Well, I suppose not. I suppose that it doesn't really hurt anybody unless we're unkind or unloving uh, in our pursuit of our own glory. But here's the thing. We all love to seek and promote our own glory But that's not the way God intended it to be. And therefore, it never lasts and it never satisfies us like we think it will. And I'm not just saying that because I'm in ministry. I'm not just saying that because I'm talking this morning. There's a great story in the New York Times about the time the the 2008 Olympics uh, were drawn to a close. And the article posed the question, after Olympic glory, what next? And it introduced this common problem for Olympians, uh, gold medal Olympians, who try to transition uh, back to normal life after they've been competing for years and years and years for noble causes uh, like the glory of their own country. And so here's what it had to say. Uh, The decathlete Bruce Jenner crossed the finish line in the 1500 meters in the 1976 Montreal Olympics, arms flying above his head, knowing he'd won the gold medal and set a world record. He just didn't know what he was going to do for dinner. I had no plans, nothing, Jenner said. A friend lent him the use of a luxury suite in Montreal that night with sweeping views of the city where he'd just been immortalized. So there I was in this amazing suite, just beautiful. I'm looking around and there's a piano. This place had a grand piano. And I thought, huh, maybe I should learn to play the piano. I mean, I was satisfied, but also devastated by the finality of it all. Many others have surged to worldwide glory that will be short-lived, if intensely emotional, and there will soon be, they will soon be engulfed by the fog of open-ended uncertainty known as ordinary life. There are second and third acts on the Olympic stage, but not many. You're talking about people who've trained for years, almost every day, and made huge sacrifices, uh, says Charlie Brown, a sports psychologist. His clients include Olympic kayakers, swimmers, and runners. And for some of them, once they have this huge, intense experience, it's a very fragile situation afterwards. So this article went on to say that there, there was a study done. Uh, psychologists did a study of uh, gold medal Olympians transition to working life. Uh, they studied 163 of them, and they found that only 17% made the transition from the workplace without significant emotional stress, including substance abuse and depression. And so their solution, according to the New York Times, one Olympic gold medalist who returned to law school after his first medal said, athletes should have another passion, something they can use as a stress release from training and that will be there when the training is gone. So talk about a major area in our world, uh, something very familiar to all of us, a major area of seeking name and seeking glory uh, in the athletic stage. And these Olympic athletes look around on a world that once loved them and applauded them for seeking their name and glory, and they're devastated by the finality of it all. And the recommendation in the article is, get another passion that will last. 
So how about you? Have y'all ever been devastated by the finality, um, by that end-of-the-road approach to seeking your own name and glory, that, that thing that you were promised would satisfy at the end of it once you attained it? It would make you so happy. You'd get there. It'd be great. And then you look around on a world uh, that promised you all of that, and you're devastated uh, by the finality of seeking your own name and glory. The recommendation is get another passion that will last. And so if our hearts were made to experience God and His glory, which is what the Bible says about us, then filling our lives with anything smaller than God and His glory will always turn us up empty. So here's the question. How do we get another passion that will last? Or how do we turn from unsatisfying personal glory propaganda posters that leave us feeling empty to a life that experiences God and His glory instead? Or, to put it another way, how do we get another passion not focused on our own glory and know that it will last? I think there's three pretty quick, pretty simple ways to do that. Number one, simply enough, believe the gospel. In Romans, Paul describes sin, in Romans chapter 1, he describes sin as exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images. And then he goes on to describe sin as falling short of the glory of God. And so I think we see that sin, uh, contrary to, I think, how our culture views sin, sin is not mainly about what we do um, between you and me. It's not generally a transaction uh, on the horizontal plane. Sin is mainly uh, an offense between us and God on the vertical plane. It's not wanting him, and it's not trusting him. And so we're all in the same boat uh, with regard to our obedience to God's commands and treatment of his glory, according to Romans 3. We're just like the people of Shinar. Instead of loving God's glory and commands, we rebel and we exchange him for tiny towers and personal propaganda. And just like for the people of Shinar, there's just judgment. But in the gospel, Jesus, who perfectly obeyed all of God's commands and perfectly loved God's glory the way that he should above his own, he received all of our judgment. And so when we believe the gospel for the first time or the thousandth time in our lives, we're made right with God by faith, we have peace with God, and we stand in pure grace. So believe the gospel because we desperately need it. That's the first way. The second way, how do we get another passion uh, that will last and won't leave us feeling unsatisfied? I think the second way is to realize that we weren't created to be at the center of our own life. John Piper uses this great illustration of your life as a solar system. And in general, in your solar system, there's, there's a really hot, really massive sun. And everything in your life, uh, your, your personal glory, your personal ambitions, relationships, sex, anything, is supposed to rotate around that really hot, really weighty center um, that's God and his glory. And so what happens when we trade something out here on the fringes of the solar system, like Pluto, that's not even a planet even anymore, How do, what happens when we take Pluto and we put it at the center, something of our own personal glory or personal ambition, and we put the sun and all of its weight and all of its gravitas out in the, out in the outskirts where Pluto belongs, and we have chaos. The whole solar system uh, turns and uh, destroys in on itself. And so we see chaos in our lives, we see chaos in our friends' lives, we see chaos in our world, because God and his glory 
is not at the very center of everything that we do and all of our passions and ambitions and everything else that we're seeking after in life is not rotating around him and pointing towards him. So realize that we weren't created to be at the center of our own life. Three, how do we get another passion not focused on our own glory and know that it will last and know that it will satisfy? Orient your life, your work, and your culture making with the goal of knowing the glory of God and making him known. Again, we were created in God's image and made to fill the earth. And then as we fill the earth, we image out as image bearers. We reflect out knowledge of the glory of God. And so we get our greater passion that will last as we fill the earth, as we grow in Christ, slowly but surely, toward that goal. And it's simple. I don't think that's in the hard things of life. I think it's in the very simple things. It's learning to read your Bible through a lens of seeing God as the center piece of all of history and seeing him uh, as the massive weight in the middle of all of history and in your in your life invite god into the moment by moment happenings of your life as you pray he's not just a weekend habit uh, he's he's there for us moment by moment as we get to know him and then join a community group or something similar uh, perhaps in this church that would allow you uh, to to associate with other people who are making the goal of knowing god and making him known a part of their daily lives. And so, in general, your life, your work, your culture making uh, should be doing 1 Corinthians 10.31. It's a great verse. It says, Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And so you know what? What happens after that? When we, when we know God as more than just a weekend habit, we'll probably start to do some really crazy things, like talk about him, with our friends who don't know God. And we'll talk about him, amazingly enough, like he's the most valuable, weighty person in our lives, rather than what we normally do, which is talk about our iPod first, and then talk about God maybe 10 years down the road. How can, how can our friends really believe that he's the most important, most valuable person in our universe when we talk about him never, or talk about him seldom? And so we'll begin to pray. I think as God becomes the center of our lives, we'll begin to pray for missionaries and ministries and people groups around the world that we've never even heard of because all of a sudden our passion is for God and his glory and it lasts and it satisfies and we want the rest of the world to know that as well. So we can believe the gospel, we can realize we're not made to be at the center of our own life and we can orient our life, our culture, our work toward the goal of knowing God and his glory and making him known. So, to go back to my original mention of Soviet propaganda posters, no one could have convinced people in the heyday of the Soviet Union that one day their dreams of a giant empire across the world would fail. They were convinced that the USSR would continue to grow in glory and prominence and one day encompass the entire planet. But it all came crashing down one day. It didn't last and it didn't satisfy. So just like those old Soviet propaganda posters were trying to promote a message of the glory of the Soviet Union, I think if we spend our lives seeking and promoting our own personal glory, we'll someday find that we've promoted a glory that didn't last and didn't satisfy. And we might be left with some creepy old glory propaganda posters that are just laughable collector's items. But if we instead seek God and his glory, seen most clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that is something that will satisfy us and will have been worth our lives as well. 
Let me pray for us. Father, you're worth it. It's really not at all about us. It's really all about you, our life, our ambition, our work, our culture making, our city, even our interests and activities. Uh, Lord, they're, they're misguided and they're misplaced when they're at the center of our lives. And you're not. And so, Lord, I pray that you would, um, by your spirit, do that change in our life. Uh, so that we worship you rightly, we see you rightly as you ought to be seen, and that as our world uh, encounters knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ from our lives, that they would know you as well. I pray that that would be something that marks us, not something that we just hope for someday, but that we work towards and we orient our lives towards, uh, and that you become our, our chief ambition and our chief glory. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.